I'd like to uh, go back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, as kind of a starting point. Verse 33, Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Welcome to the Grace and Mercy Hour, brought to you by Rocky Mount Church in Arab, Alabama. Rocky Mount Church is a primitive Baptist congregation, a family-integrated church that seeks to worship God in spirit and in truth, a church that seeks to maintain the simplicity of New Testament worship. Thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned at the end of the broadcast for contact information, and may the Lord bless our time together today. Verse 33, Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. You know, we spent some time with verse 31 recently where the question, two questions are asked, what shall we then say to these things? And we spent some time looking back in the context of this passage to see just what those things were. But in answer to that question, what shall we then say to these things, Paul replies with another question, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so what we've read here in verse 33 is, part of the answer. It's a continuation of, of Paul's, I won't say effort, because uh, he's inspired of the Holy Ghost, but he's pinning some things down here to help us, in that sense, in an effort, to help us answer the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, verse 32, he answers part of that by saying, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And then verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The answer to that particular question is, It is God that justifies. The answer to the question who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect is, it's God that justifieth. It is God who declares innocence. It is God who declares who is just, who is righteous, who is innocent. Who is the elect? Who is Paul talking about? There's so much misunderstanding in the world of Christianity about who the elect is, who the elect are. What does that word mean? What does the term mean? When I see something in the New Testament in particular about the elect or election, what does that mean? I, I need to know because this is, this is an important question that Paul is asking. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I'm interested in the answer to that question because this morning, if I feel the love of God in my heart, if I feel to, to be one who God has shown His blessings, His mercy, His grace, who has implanted His love within me, if I feel to be that person this morning, I, I need to know, is there something missing? Is there something I haven't done? Is there something that somebody else can do? Is, something, is there something that Satan can do? Is there anything that can be done that would undo what God has done? Is there something that anybody can do to 
bring a charge against me that might keep me from living in heaven one day? Well, the answer is, it's God that justifies. Now, immediately, that, that, that brings me hope. That brings me an earnest expectation that, that this is in God's hand, not mine. Not yours, certainly not the devil, not anyone else's. It's in God's hands. He is the one that has declared innocence. So if he's the one that's declared innocence, first of all, I have to come to the conclusion, but then I need to test this to see, to see if it carries out or not. My first conclusion would be, well, if anybody could lay anything to the charge of God's elect, it could only be God. It could only be God because he's the one that has declared innocence. If innocence, if the declaration of being justified is in the hand of God, it's his. It's his to own. It's his to maintain. It's his to keep. And nobody stronger than God can I find anything in Scripture that leads me to believe that God might undo something he has done. Let's find out. I want to go all the way back to the book of Revelation because the, the first thing I need to know more about is who are the elect? It's just a few, it's just you, it's just a certain denomination. If it's the elect who are called according to his purpose, it is the elect who he says God foreknew, it is the elect who God predestinated, it is the elect, he says again, who, who God called, it is the elect who are justified, it is the elect who will, will one day be glorified, it is the elect that, that God is for. It, it's the us. If it is the us, if it is the elect who are innocent, who have been declared righteous and innocent before God, how did that happen? So we go all the way back to the book of Revelation. Revelation. We want to see what it looks like in the end. And John was blessed with many visions, many of which I do not understand. Confess to that readily. But it, John was blessed with a vision. Let's begin with verse or chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. John sees someone sitting on a throne. He says, him that sat on the throne in verse 1. And him that sat on the throne had a book. The one who sat on a throne had a book. And this book was written within and on the back side. And it was sealed with seven seals. And the scene, you, as you read through this, becomes very, um, very emotional, almost disturbing in a way, because John begins to weep. John begins to weep because he sees this one sitting on the throne, and he's holding this book in his right hand, but nobody is worthy to open the book. The book cannot be opened. Uh, John doesn't know what's in it. He can't see. He can't himself open it. And there's no one found worthy to take that book and open it, but then someone that John calls an elder comes along and says to him, Weep not. Weep not, John. Behold, the, the, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. There is one who can open the book. There is one who is worthy 
to open the book, and he's called the lion. He's called the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called the root of David. And then John looks, and he sees, and he sees a lamb. He sees a lamb standing there, but this lamb is one that as, as though had been slain. But the lamb is standing there. And the conclusion, or what John what was revealed to John, is that this lamb standing in the midst there in front of the throne is worthy to open the book. And so, listen to what he says. All of those around the throne, listen carefully now, all of those around the throne, because it has been revealed that this lamb is worthy to open the book, all of those around the throne began to sing, and they sung a new song, verse 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We're getting a glimpse of what it looks like in heaven at the last day. John sees a lamb. He's worthy. And everybody around the throne is singing praises to that lamb. And they're singing praises to the lamb because that lamb was slain. And, they, and the song is, you have redeemed us. You have purchased us. You have redeemed us, he says, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Chapter 7. You, you spend chapter 6 learning about these seals, and one seal is opened one at a time, and after that sixth seal is opened, there seems to be a little bit of a pause for chapter 7. And John begins to see more things. More things are beginning to be revealed to John. So after John sees this scene where the Lamb is in the midst and then they're in front of the throne and they're all singing praises to him because the Lamb has redeemed them by his blood, now John sees a little bit different scene. This time he says in verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude of people which no man can number, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with their white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Here's a great multitude that no man can number. Now remember, we're trying to find out who the elect are. We saw over there in Romans 8 that it is God who has justified the elect. It is God who has declared the elect to be innocent. Okay? Fast forward to the end, and we're seeing this, this scene that John saw, and John's describing it for us, and there's a great multitude of people that no man can number. And, that, and, they, and they come from every nation, every tribe, every, uh, uh, every people, every uh, kindred. And they're also singing this song. And they're singing praises unto the Lamb. And they're accrediting the Lamb for their salvation. They've been redeemed. And it is the blood of this Lamb that has paid for them, who has purchased this great multitude and it is that blood of the Lamb that has wrought for the forgiveness of sins so that they are now declared innocent. They are justified. There's the elect. There's the elect. Not a small number. Not just a particular denomination. Not just one particular group. 
but a great multitude of people. A great multitude of people that no man can number. They come from all nations. They come from all kindreds. They come from all peoples. They come from all tongues. They come from all tribes. They're of every stripe and flavor you can imagine. They're a great multitude of people, and they've been redeemed. These are the elect. The elect are a great multitude of people that no man can number who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We see what it looks like in the end. Now let's back up and see how they got there. We'll back up to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this beginning in verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Here's something by which you were not redeemed. <laughs> but with the precious blood of Christ, here is how you were redeemed. So Peter is confirming for us what we see there in Revelation that John has pinned down what he has seen. Peter confirms it as well, that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. But then Peter goes on to say, who verily, talking about Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Well, that brings in another bit of information. Okay, these elect, this great multitude of people who were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ, we find out that Christ, what he did, what he did while he was in the world, the reason he came into the world, the purpose for which he came into the world was foreordained. It was before determined, before the foundation of the world. So before creation, before the beginning, before the foundation, before the world began, Christ was foreordained. The work of Christ, the purpose of Christ coming into the world was determined beforehand. Why was it determined before the world began that Christ would come into the world to offer himself as a sacrifice? Why? Well, God in his omniscience, knowing all things, sees the condition of man. He sees the fall of man, and he sees the need for redemption out of his great love and mercy and grace. He sees their need for redemption and determines, if you, if you will, to do something about it. Because he also sees that man couldn't do anything about it. Because he sees the fall. So that gives us a little more information about what's going on here. Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Oh, by the way, verse 21, Peter says, Who by him, that is by Christ, do believe in God. You believe in Christ this morning. You believe in God this morning. Let me ask you that, because that's what Peter said. Do you believe in God this morning? I'm not talking about you just have a, uh, an, an idea that there might be a creator out there, that it's pretty obvious from the looks of nature and from creation itself that, uh, you know, that there's somebody, had to be some kind of intelligent design. That's all well and good, but do you believe in God this morning? Do you believe in God? It is because Christ Jesus dwells within you, and it is by Christ that you believe, who by him do believe in God. Now, Peter says that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. 
is made known. Aren't you thankful that God has made known some things? I mean, God didn't have to make known. Now, did he? God did not have to make known all of this, although at the time that Christ lived and what happened then, and just from a historical standpoint, certainly there would have been some, and there is, some record from just a historical standpoint of this man Jesus of Nazareth being in the world and what they did to him and what happened to him. From a historical standpoint, all of that would have been, would have been there in history, and it is. And those people in that day, all of that would have been made known. But we're talking about something more than just a historical knowledge of Jesus Christ. These things have been made manifest. What Christ did, why he did it, for whom he did it, and his successful, perfect accomplishment of the Father's will. That's been made known. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Aren't you glad you know something about it? God could have done it and would have done it and did do it, but he, he didn't have to make it known like he has. It would have been very difficult to totally re, uh, uh, conceal it just from a historical standpoint, but he's made it known and he's preserved the knowledge of these things through his word. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? So he says, these things have been made manifest for you. Well, who's Peter writing to? Well, lo and behold, Peter is writing, according to the second verse of the first chapter there, that he's writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's writing to the elect. That's what we're trying to find out more about is the elect and, and how and, and what happened and, and how that scene finally develops, if you will, and what that scene, how they all got there. Uh, that, that great multitude of people, uh, Peter is writing to them. He refers to them as the elect. And he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I think there's some misunderstanding in the world of Christianity when you start talking about foreknowledge. Uh, the, the temptation is for us to think foreknowledge and omniscience are the same. And, and that's, not, that's not right. That's not true. God is omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. Uh, he, he knows past, present, future. He, he, he knows all. God is omniscient. When you talk about foreknowledge, almost every time you see that word, some form of it, it's referring to people. And even when it is referring to an action or an event, it is referring to an event that is vitally connected to the salvation of God's people. It has either a direct or indirect reference to the salvation of people. Now, there may be one or two places where a similar word refers to events and actions, but here we're talking about people because he says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We want to we kind of develop a little bit more of that in just a moment. Here we have the elect. Christ redeemed a great multitude of people by his blood. They've been declared just. They've been declared innocent. They've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ and his purpose and his work was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And Peter says, you, the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. Let's, let's back up to Hebrews. I think we need to get a couple more verses here from Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to keep working our way back. Hebrews chapter 10. 
The apostle is quoting from the book of Psalms, beginning around verse 7, maybe a little bit before that as well. There was the Old Testament, right? There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices and offerings made. There were animal sacrifices. There were blood sacrifices. But there were animals, and they were done a, 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 exactly the way, or supposed to have been done exactly the way that God prescribed them. And they didn't do anything to uh, remove sin. They didn't do anything even in the forgiveness of sins. But, in fact, they were a reminder. The, the, the Bible tells us they were a reminder of sin. Uh, but nevertheless, they were an offering and a sacrifice that God instructed the people to make and served as a foreshadowing, if you will. It pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of that lamb, that lamb without spot and without blemish. All that pointed to the lamb of God, which was to be the ultimate, final, perfect, and really only sacrifice that ever had an actual effect on sin. Okay, And so that Paul is writing about some of those things here, and he says in verse... 9, he says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. A prophetic uh, psalm referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that is that first testament, that he may establish the second, the second testament. Christ came to do the will of God. He says in verse 10, By the which will we are sanctified. That, that's, a, that's a positive declaration, isn't it? Christ came to do the will of God, and by that will, by the which will, we are sanctified. We are cleansed. Not we're going to be, might be, going to try to be, going to be offered to us or anything like that. We are sanctified. We have been made clean. clean. We are cleansed through the offering of the body, there was an offering, all right. It was an offering on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ to His Father. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You can read that however you want. Once for all, for all for whom the sacrifice was made. Or you can say once for all time. No more to be done. And I think that's the context of it. But nevertheless, it was done once, and that was it. It was final. No more sacrifices needed. No more offerings needed. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Look what he says. Which can never take away sins. Now listen to this. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting his till his enemies be made his footstool. Here's what I wanted. Verse 14. For by one offering, Christ came to do the will of the Father. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ. And by that offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That tells me Christ accomplished something. Amen? <laughs> Christ got the job done. He didn't just make things possible or available. He actually did so. His offering, his sacrifice declared somebody to be cleansed. His offering declared somebody to be perfected. Not just made it possible, not just made it available, but did it. Amen? He did it. Now who were they? All of this is connected, right? I hope, you're, I hope we're seeing the connection. 
Those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ that we see over there in that grand scene, that great multitude of people that no man can number out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, people, nation. We see those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ when he offered his body on the cross, offered it to God, his Father. We see here they've been sanctified, they've been cleansed, they've been perfected. It's a done deal. That's the elect. Again, not a small number of people. Let's back on up a little bit further to the book, to the book of Titus. What Paul has, uh, what the apostle has brought into to play there is, uh, again, uh, this, this thing about foreknowledge and, and things that were done, things that were determined before the world began. Let's, let's see if we can get a little bit more of that in here, get a little bit more understanding. When Paul begins this epistle to Titus, he says in verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Here's, here's a connection. Paul is, is writing about something that God determined before the world began. He said he promised eternal life. He promised eternal life. And God can't lie. There's a few things that God can't do. One of them is lie. He can't lie. God promised eternal life before the world began. Now, how was God going to keep that promise? Well, we, we've already seen some of that. It was foreordained that Christ would come into the world to redeem his people. That's how God was going to keep his promise. He promised eternal life. Could he depend on you to make that promise sure? Could he depend on me? God forbid. Could he depend on anyone in the fallen human race to ensure his promise? No. Why would he? Why would he? Why would he make an oath like that? Why would he make a vow like that? Why would he make a promise and, and make it dependent on man when he could make it dependent on someone much more sure than man. And that would be his son, Jesus Christ. Now granted, his son had to become a man, right? Because somebody had to make that perfect sacrifice. It couldn't be me, couldn't be you, couldn't be any of those priests of old, couldn't be the high priest, couldn't be the ministry of today, couldn't be any man, couldn't be the Pope or anybody else. It's only one man, Jesus Christ, who became a man, the Son of God who came into the world and became a man so that he could offer his body without spot and without blemish. And God promised eternal life before the world began. And in chapter 3 of Titus, he says, beginning in verse 4, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified. Hey, there's our word again. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It is God who justifies, who declares just, innocence, righteousness. Paul says to Titus that being justified by his grace. Oh, I like that term, don't you? I mentioned not long ago, just here recently, that justification is a huge subject and, and maybe we'll address it sometime. But without this, it means nothing. Without first being justified by grace, it means nothing. Justified through the blood of Jesus Christ, 
by God's grace. Being justified by grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What was that hope? That was the hope of eternal life. That was eternal life that God promised before the world began. So now we have this earnest expectation of eternal life and being made heirs. So now Paul brings in something else. He brings in the idea of being an heir. That means you have an inheritance, right? That means you are a child, whether you are born that way, whether you are adopted, whatever it is, now you are an heir of God. Why? Because you've been justified by grace. You've been justified by His blood. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are among the elect. That great multitude of people that no man can number. Well, we've got to back up a little bit more, okay? Let's back on up into Timothy, 2 Timothy. Very familiar passage. Paul encourages Timothy and he encourages us to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, Paul says. Don't be ashamed of this testimony. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of His gospel or the gospel messenger. Don't be ashamed of your testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And then he says, Who hath saved us and called us, this is verse 9, with a holy calling. Saved us and called us. Now we've seen that word called, and I think by now we're probably understanding that all this is in this great, big, huge subject of salvation, concerning the salvation of a people. And, and, and Paul says, God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Before the world began. It, 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 we, we can't get away from it, can we? I don't want to get away from it. Uh, thank God for whatever he was doing, if I can put it that way, for, for however long it was, don't think time existed then, but in my little mind, whenever God determined, and whatever it was, and however long he was determining these things, he did so before creation. He did so before the world began, and I'm thankful it's that way. He did so before Adam fell before man fell, and oh, by the way, before you fell also in Adam, he had the remedy for what was about to happen before it ever happened. Amen? He had the remedy for sin before the first sin was ever committed. Before the world began. What did he say here? This saving, this salvation, this calling, which we read there over in Romans 8, concerning the elect, he says this calling is a holy calling. Now, there, there's a call, just a quick side note, there is a call in the gospel, right? The gospel call. The message of the gospel is a call to the Lord's people to do something. That's the gospel call. It is a call to righteousness. It's a call to godliness. It's a call to holiness. And if everything is working like it's supposed to be, certainly the Holy Spirit of God is involved on both ends of that proclamation of the gospel, 
on the one who's proclaiming it and the one who is hearing it. That don't always work like it's supposed to. may not be working this morning. I don't know. But it don't always work like it's supposed to. Here we're talking about a holy calling. And that's not the gospel call. Here we're talking about a call of the spirits that brings a person out of a state of death in sin to a life in Christ, a life eternal. And God says that this salvation and this holy calling was not according to our works. Hold it, we're talking about what God was doing before the world began, right? Are we? If we're talking about what God was doing before the world began. So God is looking ahead before the world began, and He determines, He promises eternal life, He determines salvation, He determines this holy calling before the world began, and what was it not according to? Our works. God did not look down through the annals of time and see how good a job you were going to do and elect you. God did not look, not according to our works, that would be according to our works. But God, before the world began, as he was determining these things, he, de he decided, he determined back then that none of this is according to anything you do. See that? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus. Given us. Given who? Whew. Given the elect. <laughs> giving that great multitude of people that no man can number that's, that's out there sometime, either now or in the future, standing around the throne, singing praises unto the Lamb. That great multitude of people that no man can number. He gave us grace in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He gave somebody grace. Was it just in general? No, it was to us. Gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the world began. I'm glad God saw fit. Now, he says, but now is made manifest, much like uh, what... Um, what we read there a minute ago, these things are now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light, to light through the gospel. I'm thankful for the gospel this morning, aren't you? I'm thankful that God has made known His works through His Word. And part of Him making these things known, part of that, He's also made known to us that all of these were not according to our works. Now he goes on, he's brought in all of this, these things that have to do with things that happened before the world began, and I know we could go to Ephesians chapter 1, be a great place, great time to go to Ephesians chapter 1 and, and read about, you know, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And it would be a good idea to go there and, and pick up the rest of, of that information having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, because adoption is a very important part of all of this. Also, in that first chapter of Ephesians, Paul tells us that part of this matter of predestination, which we really haven't even talked about yet, includes the fact that you've been predestinated to obtain an inheritance, back to being an heir of, of God, a child of God. Having obtained, uh, obtained an inheritance, having been predestinated, according to him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Be careful on those all things. But let's go to the book of John, and let's finish up here. So, so the elect, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. It is God that has determined innocence. 
He has determined innocence through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that, that blood that uh, obtained eternal life for us, that obtained the forgiveness of sins for us. It was according to the will of God that Christ accomplished while He was in the world. In the world. It was by that will that we were sanctified, cleansed, perfected forever. John chapter 6, Jesus affirms that for us when he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Verse 37. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So if God determined all of this before the world began, and Paul said there in 2 Timothy that he gave us grace in Christ, that he determined his will, his will was established in Christ before the world began, that means that, that God had this uh, that's why he had to go to Ephesians chapter 1, according as he has chosen us in him. God has wrapped his big old arms around this great multitude of people that no man can number, and he has given them to Jesus Christ. Because he knows they'll be safe and secure there. He knows that his son will come into the world, and all that the Father, says his son, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and whether they come to him in the, in the knowledge of the, of the Son of Jesus Christ through the gospel in this world, that's for you to debate and figure out and for somebody else to figure out. I know one thing for sure. They will come to him in regeneration in the new birth and they'll come to him through the, through the portals of glory one day. I know they'll come to him at that time. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. The elect, the great multitude of people that no man can number, that God, out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and people, God gave them to his Son. His Son died for them. He calls them his sheep. I laid down my life for the sheep. John chapter 10. My sheep know me. I know them. He said, that's more important. I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Christ knows his sheep. Not just a head knowledge, friends. He knows, just like uh, as a part of that foreknowledge, that relationship established on the basis of love. That's knowing. And Christ knows. It's God who declares innocence. It is His sovereign right and will to declare innocence. That's why we rejoice in the words that the angel spoke to Joseph there in Matthew chapter 1. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Thank you again for listening. Rocky Mount Church is a primitive Baptist congregation located near Arab, Alabama. We invite you to look us up on the web at rockymountpbc.org. That's rockymountpbc.org. You'll find various resources there on our website, as well as additional links to other primitive Baptist sites. You'll find contact information there, and we would love to hear from you. 
you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thank you again for listening. We look forward to the next opportunity we can spend some time together. May the Lord bless you is our prayer. Thank you.